We are in the book of John. We're in John chapter 14. We've been, we've been kind of rolling through there. We slowed down as we hit John 13. We were moving through. People were real optimistic that we were going to get through John fairly quickly, and I have dashed those optimistic ideas. Uh, we slowed down in John 13, really because this is such an important message for us. I mean, it just as I was studying John over the months, I just started realizing, man, 13 through 17, this is Jesus' last chance, in a sense, before he dies. He's teaching his disciples. He's preparing his disciples. He's telling them, this is what's coming. Here's how you're going to make it. This is gonna, and, and he even tells them in 13, and you don't even get it yet. You don't get it yet, but you will. There will be a time where you'll go, duh, I got it. Right? You'll, they'll start understanding it. And so in John 14, we looked at verses 1 through 3, and we talked about this idea that we need hope. We need this confidence, a confidence to be able to navigate life successfully. And that a confidence Jesus taught them, it's available to you. Then we talked about the nature of the confidence. What is that? He said, I have a place for you. The deepest longing of the human heart is this idea of a home, a place, a place where I am loved just for who I am, not for what I do, not for how I look, not for the things I've accomplished, not for anything like that. I'm just loved because I'm me, right? And Jesus says, I'm preparing a place for you, and it's based on that. And we talked about, okay, if we, know the, if we see we need confidence and we know the nature of it, how do we get it? And Jesus talks about that at the, at the beginning of John 14. He talks about how important belief is, believing in Jesus. We learn to, about him, and then we learn to trust him, and he lets them know this is a lifelong process. Then in, in verses 4 through 6, it was, he teaches them that this is a relationship. This is so key. It's a relationship, all right? He's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not all the different ways we experience how we relate to people on this earth. This is an intimate, personal relationship. The way to the Father is not through a set of rules. It's a relationship. And he tells them the truth in life is for now and in the future. Jesus is the giver of life. He's the meaning of life. He tells them, I'm the journey and I'm the destination. We talked about that it is very exclusive and inclusive at the same time. Why? What is that? It is exclusive in that it comes through Jesus. And it is inclusive in that it is open to everyone. And then last week, we talked about Philip saying, you know, Lord, show us the Father. And that'll be enough. Philip says, that'll be enough for me. This, this is the ultimate goal of, of any religion is this finding out the ultimate meaning in the universe. He says, just do that for me. That'll be enough. It's what we're all looking for. And Jesus then immediately talks to him about seeing. In the book of John, throughout the Bible, the concept of seeing is gone over, over and over and over, tons of times. Why? Because it is so important for us, not just to see something like looking at a screen and seeing pixels, but seeing what's really happening. What is the truth behind it? So we're looking, we're seeing, and then he talks again about believing. And so now we get to verses 12 through 15. And I'm going to read those for you in John chapter 14. You can follow along in your Bible, on your phone, whatever, but I'm going to read it very truly, I tell you. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. 
Now, let's suppose, suppose you had a close friend, a friend that you knew very well and you trusted. And this close friend said, I have this rich aunt and uncle, and, and uh, they live in this beautiful, beautiful house, and they have died. They collected antiques from the 17 and 1800s, and they have given it all to me. Will you help me go get all those antiques, take them to a place where they will auction them off? If you'll help me do that, I'll split the profit with you. All right? Now, this friend has been trustworthy in the past. They haven't been, you know, somebody who keeps coming up with get-rich-quick schemes or anything like this. But, you know, you might think, well, I'm pretty busy. Too busy to bother. You might think, I'm a little skeptical. Not sure if this is all it's being made out to be. You might be unconvinced. Really? Antiques? I've heard this before. All right? Everybody has antiques. And he says, just come. Just come and see. Just come to the house and see. And he says, ah, no thanks. Got stuff to do. Too busy. And if we're honest, that's the way a lot of us are concerning prayer. We're a little bit skeptical. We're too busy a lot. We're not sure if we can really trust. We're afraid. And this is a key point. This is a key point for us. It was a key point for the disciples, and it's a key point for us. Jesus is going to talk about this because they're about to start a journey. They're about to go on a mission. They're about to face hardships and hostility, and they will need the concept, the power of prayer desperately. And Jesus is saying to them, as we just read, come to me, ask of me. I will listen. I will answer. You will not be effective without this. You know, as a church, this local body of believers, we're kind of entering this new season of ministry. COVID, you know, came through and changed everything and and we lost people, and some new people came, and it's just been a total just turnover in so many ways. And now, as we're moving on, it's like, oh, are there new ways we should do ministry? Are there new concepts we should be looking at? Are there new things we should be thinking about? And also, how can we, in a sense, reach out and reach more people? It's, it's never, and we talk about this in our membership class, it's not about numbers. But it is true. When we talk about numbers, we're talking about people. That's what's important. People. Helping people, serving people, loving people, seeing people change. This is what we're to be about. And we're moving into kind of this new season of ministry. And Jesus is saying there is this reservoir of power that is available to us. So how can we be praying people? Now, as we begin, I want to say this. This is, we're not going to go through everything about it. This is not going to be an exhaustive sermon on prayer. There's no way you could do it in one sermon. There's lots of places where Jesus talks about prayer, sometimes in more detail, sometimes in less detail. But they're all worth studying to get the full picture because in any one passage, you don't get the full picture. But I want you to see that we're going to get this clear idea of how important this is for us. So the first thing I want you to see is the mission that we have been called to. It's the same mission that the disciples have been called to. So let's look at that mission. Why? Because we all want meaning in our life. We all would like to think that our life will count for something. 
We'd all like to think that our life will count for something that will last beyond us, right? Something bigger, bigger than us. And so how do we do that? Well, how do people do that out in the world, right? They name buildings after themselves. If you give us this much money, we'll put your name on the top of the building. So you will live on. If you listen to, I listen to um, public radio. I like public radio. I listen to NPR. And every once in a while, they'll have, they, they don't have ads. They just have times where they want you to listen to somebody or give money. So it works out to be about the same, I think. But one of the things they said, and they say this every so often, they say, would you like to live on forever? Give to this fund. And then scholarships will be given in your name. Things will be done in your name. So you will live on forever. And I want to tell you, I mean, that's, pretty, that's, that's not much comfort for me. I'm like, I don't care about those stupid scholarships. I want to do something that lives on, means something. And this is, this is what Jesus is going to be talking about here because we want to be involved in something great. We want to do something great. We want to be something great. Not a vain desire for attention, but a deep desire to matter in this world. You know, man, it's like every week it comes up. This is the Zoe life that Jesus is talking about. In John 10, I came, John 10, 10, he says, I came that you might have life. That's that Zoe life, a life that is full of meaning and purpose. And then he adds to it, and he says it's abundantly. And that word abundantly means it's surprising how great it is. And it has this concept of intensity. It's an intense life. So that that it helps us see this is the life he wants, this life that has meaning and purpose. And Jesus has talked quite a bit about this. And that's why, I mean, when you do something and you do it well, you have a feeling of accomplishment. It feels good. You feel good about what you've done. Uh, When I was in grad school, I worked for for a number of years as a painter. And so painting houses or painting painting offices and and buildings. You know what? You, You paint a house. You come to a house that looks pretty sketchy, right? And you scrape it and sand it, and then you prime it, and then you paint it. You put a couple of beautiful coats of, you know, of of really nice paint. And you step back and you go, man, (laughs) look what these hands have done. You know, I'm an artiste. I like to think that I'm an artist and just because I can take a big fat paintbrush and slap paint, right? But you feel good about it because you've done something, and it's good, we all can sense that. It's, it's in us. It's a part of who we are. Now, here's what happens. You, you drive by that house a couple times the first year, you're like, yeah, I did it. I did that. See that house? I painted that house. Yeah, I did. And then after about five or six years, you're like, did I really paint that house? Because it's not lasting very long. It should last longer than that. You know, and it, why? Because it fades. It fades. Over time, this, this, uh, this glory we're looking for, It fades, it's fleeting, it's elusive. And we end up wanting more, something that lasts. You know, it's it's easy to talk about because it's such a a good case study. And oftentimes we see uh, famous professional athletes that once their career is over, they flounder because they want what they had before. The glory, the fame, the accolades, and it is fading. It is fading. Not so long ago, there was a... uh, documentary on Michael Jordan, and it, and, it, and it showed him watching NBA basketball almost every night, in the, like in this past year, and, and reading up on what they say about the players, and who's the greatest, and who's not the greatest, and who do they compare them to. 
and, uh, and the guy said, he was, it was very, it was very uh, poignant because at times he yells at his TV screaming, he's not as good as I was, but it's fading. He feels it. It's fading. And this happens so much. But, you know, it's easy to pick on, on celebrities, you know, actors and athletes. But the truth is we do the same thing. You know, we, 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 we're thinking, you know, some praise, some accomplishment, some action that I can do will give me what I need, will satisfy me, will give me security. And the problem is the human heart is made for something greater than that, something that no human success can satisfy. They, they satisfy for a little bit, but then they fade. There's something greater. And what is it? Jesus says this very truly. I tell you, now let me just stop there. Here we go again, right? Very truly. In the Greek, that's actually the word truly twice. And it is a very strong statement. It is Jesus saying at the very beginning of this statement to his disciples, he say, it's a, and it's a commanding statement. Look at me. Right? Those of you with young children, you know sometimes when things are getting crazy and out of control, You've got to stop it. And one of the ways you do it is you go, look at me. Just look. No, don't look up. No, look at, no don't look at your sister. Look at me. You need that, that, that powerful, that sense of I'm looking and listening to you. And Jesus is saying to them, listen to me. Look at me. This is important. All right? So he's saying that to you. Well, what's so important, Jesus? Whoever believes in me, will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. He says an astounding statement here. He says, for those who believe first, <clears throat> they're going to do the works I've done. They're going to do works like me. That's pretty powerful. So what has Jesus been doing? Well, I mean, you, it's kind of a rhetorical question, right? Blind people see I mean, the whole walk on water thing, I think, is really cool. If there's a work, I just feel like that'd be awesome. Raising, oh, raising from the dead, though, maybe tops that, I guess, you know, when you think about it. Feeding people miraculously, on and on and on. These are the things Jesus has been doing, right? Now, how is that, can that be possible, that I'm going to be able to, you're going to be able to do things like he did? What does this statement mean? Well, I think here's what it means. First of all, first of all, the miracles of Jesus it's easy for us to focus on the power, not the point of the miracle. We love the boom, right? We love that. But what's the purpose? What is the boom accomplishing? And the miracles of Jesus always have a purpose. It wasn't like Jesus was just walking along, going, oh, 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 you're hunting food. Good. Okay, cool. And just walking on. No. There was purpose. There was meaning in what he was doing. The miracles had a purpose. What was the purpose? Reconciliation. He was reconciling. Reconciling means to take two things that are opposed and bring them together and, and let them meld, in a sense, to just, just to come together perfectly. To take two things that don't agree and make them agree. To take chaos and turn it into harmony. That's what reconciliation or reconcile means. And so Jesus sees Poverty and hunger. What is that? That's chaos. That's things happening without meaning. That's things that are opposed to the good things. 
It's out of order. It's not in line with the purpose of God. So he feeds them. What is that? That's reconciliation. The disciples are in a storm in a boat. He walks on the water out to them, and then ultimately he calms the storm. What is that? That's reconciliation between man and nature. He reconciles. He's healing, healing the brokenness in the world. He's putting things back together. He's fixing things. You see, sin, and there's so many ways we could talk about what sin is, but in one sense, sin in the Bible is our avoidance of God. It's our desire to be God and live without him. And sin breaks things down and ruins things in multiple areas. The book of Genesis tells us about it. It says that sin, what are the effects of sin in the book of Genesis? Well, first of all, the effect of sin is the relationship between man and God is broken. In the garden, what did they do? They hid themselves from God, right? So there was a breaking there. The relationship with self is broken. It says that they were full of guilt and shame. They were experiencing something they never, they never experienced before. And so relationship with self is broken. Relationship with each other is broken. Because what did Adam and Eve do? Do he cheat and get like that, right? The blame shifting. And then the relationship with the world, relationship with creation is broken. And Jesus is saying, I'm here to reconcile these things. I'm here to engage in the work of healing the broken. And he says, now, you go do it. You go do it. Maybe not the same ways. Maybe we don't have the same boom. But the same work. Go find brokenness and reconcile it. Why do we work with the homeless? Because it's part of reconciliation. Why do we work with Thrive? It's a part of reconciliation. Why do we work with CareNet? It's a part of reconciliation. Why do we work with our missionaries? We're supporting them as they reconcile people. The Mannings in Arizona with the Navajo. Rachel Schrader in the Dominican Republic with Dominican uh, teenagers. It's a process of reconciliation. The flowers that we support in Bulgaria, they're in the business of reconciling. As we've supported, you know, the, the, the translation of, of the word of God into an unknown language in a people group in China, it's part of reconciliation. Because we want to do the work of Jesus. As a part of the body of Christ, this local church, we want to do the work of Jesus. We want to go out into a world that is broken, and we want to make it a little less broken because we're a part of it. But then, you know, when you get to verse 12, the end, Jesus, it's like he astounds us with, you're going to, you're going to, he says, you're going to do works that are greater than what I've done. And that just takes it to a whole nother level. How are we going to do that? Well, the end of verse 12 gives us the key. He says, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise from the dead. I'm going to send my spirit, and I'm going to go finally and ascend to the Father. This is how you're going to be able to do it. Why? Because his earthly ministry is just a foretaste of the ministry that we're engaged in. He dealt with the effects of sin. He dealt with the symptoms of sin. When he fed the 5,000, the next day they were hungry again. When he heals people, it doesn't mean they never get sick again. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, it doesn't mean he didn't die again. I always wonder about the life insurance policy on that, but 
something to think about. I don't know why I said that. And so he dealt with the effects of sin. Now he's going to the Father. What does that mean? I'm going to deal with the disease itself, not just the symptoms. He broke the power of sin. So now by the Spirit, we have the message of reconciliation. We go out and we help with brokenness, the symptoms and the source. We we deal with both. We are to help others to be reconciled to God. I mean, I just love this. Paul talks about this extensively in... uh, and in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, Verily, Very truly, oh, there's that truly, truly again. Paul's getting serious. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do, do the works that I have been doing, and they will do, oh, sheesh, that's the one I just read. <laughs> Here's what Paul said. I didn't have it on this. He says, oh, gosh. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says, we're the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, just like we have ambassadors from our country. Ambassadors from our country go to other countries, and what do they do? They tell what the president, what the nation, the United States of America's policy is on whatever. They don't speak for themselves. They speak for someone else. He says, you're an ambassador. You're an ambassador. And he says, as though God were making his appeal through us. He's saying, we are speaking as if to you as if God is speaking to you. When you go out as an ambassador and you talk, you're talking to people, maybe you're sharing with somebody, you are speaking in place of Jesus. What an incredible privilege. Incredible responsibility, but incredible privilege. So Paul says, the very words I'm speaking are the words of God to you. It's as if God himself, and he goes on and explains, it's as if God himself is begging you, begging the whole world, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to me. He says, that's the job we have. We are the reconcilers. You are a reconciler. That's what he wants you to be. We help people find hope that is greater than the world offers. We help people find out there is a life beyond the grave. We help people find out where forgiveness, where grace is. We help people find where justice is, where righteousness is. This is work that is meaningful and full of glory. Paul talks about this. Because um, I think about this, you know, what, what we do, you know, we, we uh, put, put names. And somebody said we could, Bob, not too long, we can name this the, the Robert Mosley Memorial Chapel. And I thought, how, how long is that not too long you're talking about? I'm not sure. I'd like it to be real long. But we put our names on stuff, right? Paul says, your, name, your names are written on my heart. God says in Jeremiah, your name is tattooed on my hand. That lasts forever. That lasts forever. It's not something that fades away. This is work that is meaningful and full of glory because it lasts. It's not self-promotion. It's not self-glory. It's self-giving and it's serving others. The mission we have been called to, now the power we have at our disposal Jesus says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is not the longest teaching by Jesus on prayer, but is incredibly powerful. And I know right now some of you are thinking something like this. Okay, 
Now, Bob is going to tell us why that verse does not mean what it seems to mean. We look at that and we like, that's a blank check. Right? That's what we think. I know that feeling. But I also have to be true to the verse. Because it doesn't quite come across if you read it carefully as a blank check. But let's just think about this. What does it say? First of all, it says there's a power. He says, I will do what you ask two times. He repeats it to emphasize it. There's a qualifier. He says, in my name. And he repeats that two times to make sure you catch it. There's a purpose. He says, it's to glorify God. And there's a source because he says it comes in the sun at the, in, at the end of verse 13. So it's not exactly a blank check, but it is a guarantee. He guarantees us, I will listen to you. I will work. I will answer. I will. So let's get basic here. It's interesting. In James chapter 4, one of the things James says is you have not because you ask not. And I thought, that's an interesting thing, because when I first read that, I thought, that seems, God is basically saying, I got this great stuff for you. I need you to ask me for it. I'm not just going to throw it all on you. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cheesy. I don't know. But then I started thinking about it, because why do I have to ask? Why not just give me those great things? But here's the problem. Think about how that works with people. If God just gave me everything good without me asking for it, I would stop communicating with God because I wouldn't need him. The stuff's just coming. If God just started giving me everything without me even asking for it, I would become self-sufficient in a very negative way. I'd be overconfident. It would cloud my vision of reality because I would not understand it. And it would set me up for failure in the future because it's about relationship. This is what's so, and you know, if you think about that, any parent knows that would never work. Imagine if you just gave your kids, without them even knowing you're the one giving it, stuff just showed up for them. Toys just appeared, and there's no sense of that you were the giver. Food just appears. There's no sense you were the person that cooked it, that you were the person that bought it. Clothing just came, and there was no sense of you were the person that got that for them. What would happen to your child if that happened? If you didn't let them know, you're the one that buys the food. You're the one that buys the clothes and the toys and pays for the heat and the water in your house. It would destroy your relationship with your child. Your child wouldn't need to ask you or talk to you about anything. Your child would think they were self-sufficient. I am so incredible. All this just happens for me. That's what would happen. It would be terrible. Imagine what your child would become. Overconfident. Your child would have a terrible vision of what reality truly is. And think about this. It would set your child up for future, for, for future failure. Because as soon as they walked out of the house, the clothes stopped appearing. And it would set you up for future failure. You know why? As soon as they got out of the house for a week, they'd come back. Because they'd be like, this is the place where the food and the clothes and the heat and the water and the toys reside. I think I'll stay here. Right? No. It would be terrible. When my oldest son, Derek, was four or five, um, you know, every once in a while, we'd go out on a date night whenever we could, and uh, we'd get a babysitter. 
And one time in particular, um, we came in, hi, how'd it go? Great, you know, blah, blah, blah. We're standing there by the door. And I said, thanks so much for coming. And, and, and I gave her some money, and she walked out the door. And my little son looked up and said, you pay her to play with me? It was like reality hit him like a ton. He thought, he thought that he was such a cool kid that people just asked if they could come over and play with him all the time. Adults. Adults would just say, can I come play with Derek? He's great. He just thought that. And I handed her some money, and his world crumbled all around him. Why? Because if, 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 he, had never, if, if he just grew up thinking that was true, think how detrimental that would be. So this qualifier, he's telling him, he said, I want you to ask, and he, wants, and, he, and he tells him, it's in my name. In my name. Here we go. In the name of Jesus, amen. The tagline that we all stack onto prayers that we think is, you know, they're the code words for success. Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed and just say amen real quick? And if you're in a group that prays, watch some people go, ooh, you didn't say in Jesus' name, amen. Probably didn't get through the ceiling, that prayer. Didn't make it, right? We have this idea. Let me, it's, it's so much more. It's not that. Well, I'm going to say it's so much more than that. It's not that. In my name is, has this idea of being consistent with his, his reputation, his will, his character, his purpose. Our prayers are supposed to reflect Jesus. That's what he's talking about there. Because if you think about what a name means, it kind of states who you are. My name is Robert Mosley. I'm the son of John Mosley. Who is this? You know, it, it states something. How do you get a name? Well, you get it when you're born into a family or when you're adopted. And Scripture states clearly that we are adopted If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. John earlier in this book said, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You were adopted when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And what happens happens when you're adopted? And we did a a whole sermon one time where I talked about how adoption was back then and how it's different from adoption now, the differences and one of, one of the interesting things is, is back then when you were adopted, you, you got legal rights just like now. But some of the legal rights you got are ones that we never heard of. One of the legal rights you got when you were adopted in, 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 a Roman, in, in part of the Roman part of the world was you could never be disowned. A child that was a naturally born child could be disowned. But if you adopted, you were never allowed to disown that child. You could not disinherit that child. It lasted for as long as you lived. He was your son and, and, and on. This is, why, this is why this idea of adoption is so key when we think about us as, as children of God. That's the type of adoption they're talking about. You can never be disowned. That's an incredible thought. That's an incredible comfort. There's never going to be a day when God says, I'm sick and tired of your antics. Get out of my house. 
If you are a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, you will not be disowned. So you get these, these uh, rights that are, that are legal rights, inheritance, all those types of things. And one of those rights is access. Your right as a child of God is that you have access to the Father. You have access to the Father. And so when we talk about coming in my name, what we're talking about is, is Jesus' reputation, his will, his character, praying in line with those things and knowing that we have access at any moment. I, I, I always think about that because um, I love, and now I've forgotten it. Uh, there's a scripture in the Old Testament where it talks about us going to God and it uses the word for face-to-face. So, so it's not like if, I, if I'm down here and I start praying, right? And God is up in heaven and, and there's, you know, the cherubim and the seraphim and the royal choir and all this stuff. Is going, it's all going on. And, and it's like God, and this is my sanctified imagination talking. And God says, says, oh, everybody, my son Bob is talking to me. And it's not like God goes, yes, like down. It's like God goes right here. Yes. What is it? What is it, my son? This is important to me. So we're face to face. We're face to face. It's not the greater talking to the lesser. It's us face to face talking to each other. And this is an incredible idea. This is, this is our right of access. Jesus states it here. We have it. What's the purpose? The purpose is to glorify the Father, it says. If you use something that is not in harmony with its purpose, you shouldn't complain if it doesn't do what you were hoping it would do. If you have a space heater and you suddenly are putting burgers on top of it, you can't complain that the burgers weren't cooked very well because you didn't use it for its purpose. It didn't fit with what it's made for. And so for us, the purpose of prayer is not just some sort of a of a vending machine where if we can come up with the right words or do enough good deeds, then we got the right number of coins in and we pull and we get our candy bar out. It's not, a, it's not like that. The purpose of prayer is not just to give you whatever you want at any given time. The purpose of prayer is to get you to set your heart on the ultimate eternal thing, the glory of God. So we have to understand that the things that we might consider to be desirable, wealth and health and comfort and sex and power and authority, these things... I mean, we know these things will not bring lasting happiness or satisfaction. And so these are the things that we have to be careful, very careful about. We need to want the things that can only be found in God. When we only think about God's power, when we go to him to get things, we've got ourselves in a bad situation. But when we see his glory, what happens then is we love him not for what he gives us, but for his beauty and his greatness. We love him and serve because he's God. See, prayer fixes our heart on God. Prayer is like obeying when Jesus says, truly, truly, when Jesus says, look at me. Prayer is like, yes, I'm looking. I'm looking. It fixes our heart on God. And so we have to ask ourselves, is the thing that I'm asking for going to deepen my relationship with him? Will it make me more like Jesus? Because that's what his goal for us is, to become more like Jesus. And so when we pray, then we need to pray according to our purpose, why we're here. Lord, I want your glory. Lord, I want to I I know your heart. I want to know you more. I want to be what you want me to be. That's how we begin with this. 
this idea. We, we pray in a way that's framed by our purpose. And, and it may be saying, God, I'm asking you for this. I'm bringing you up something. I, I'm asking for this, God. I believe that this will help me serve you better. I believe that this will help me as a human being to love you more. So it can be just good things. It's not like you have to just pray for, like, you know, these super spiritual things we may think. It can be good things, but we have to understand that Jesus wants it to fit with his purpose. And I know what happens then. You know, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, Lord, help me win the lottery. I'll give you 10%, right? And that, that, that maybe is not going to work because you know why you're really praying that, Right? As if we could bribe God. God would be like, oh, 10%? Are you kidding? Oh, 12. You know, no. It's not going to happen. It's just that's not what's going on there. See? God, God is saying, look, pray this way. I, I, this will help me serve others. This will help me trust you more. This will help me go closer to you. This will help me show your glory a little better. God always answers, but it's going to fall in line with his plan and his purpose. That's why he says, in the Son. All of this is centered on what Jesus did on the cross. Prayer changes us. We think in terms of his kingdom and his glory when we pray. The more we pray, the more we think of those things. We see his glory. We see what it costs for prayer to be available to us. And I, and I know, you know, we can, we can always, this becomes something that we can really use against ourselves. We, we can misjudge and rethink and get all caught up in all kinds of crazy thoughts, you know, oh, well, should I ask for this? Is this? Well, it's a good thing to think, why am I asking? Because James talks about that. He talks about people who ask with the wrong motives. He says, God's not giving you that. You're asking with the wrong motives. There's a, there's a number of things that, that we, we have to think about. But one of the things we have to do is we have to, uh, I don't know, I always believe that we should address hard stuff. That's, that's, why we, that's why we go through books, because then you can't cheat and skip verses, all right? We have to address the hard stuff. Okay, here's the hard stuff right here. I know there are times when many people here have prayed for huge things, and some of you have had um, shattering experiences of unanswered prayer. I know what that can feel like. I know how that feels. And I know you could be thinking, Bob, you're just giving me lots of reasons not to feel bad or not to be mad at God because he didn't answer my desperate plea. You're trying to make me feel better about that. I know some of this may be cold comfort, but there is something here that I take comfort from that is incredible to me. When I experience those times of not hearing anything or maybe a no, it's something that is huge to me. And that is this. God knows intimately the feeling of unanswered prayer in a terrifying, agonizing experience. Jesus said, God, he said, Father, I mean, you're the absolute sovereign of the universe. I'd like another way. Is there another way? And as far as we know, there wasn't even an answer. It was just quiet. And I know for some people, you're in that time. You're in the quiet time. 
you're praying and you're not hearing and you don't know what, and you can't understand, and it seems like it fits in God's will. It seems like it reflects the glory of God and you pray and you agonize and you just don't hear anything. Jesus knows exactly how that feels. Exactly how that feels. And that gives comfort because in the garden, and we'll delve deeper into this when we get there in this study, Jesus saw what was coming, and Scripture tells us he was terrified. He uses two words that are absolutely strong, powerful words for terror, for losing control of yourself in, in, in fear. He, he was terrified at what he saw. He saw the suffering of the sin of the whole human race, and he wanted out. He said, God, is there any other way? And, and, and I mean, he, and then he said, you know, and then he said, your will be done. But he asked for a way. He, he prayed, and the answer effectively was no. Because God's looking at the whole picture that we can never see. And God saw salvation being accomplished through Jesus Christ going to the cross, and he said, my son, nope, you, you got to go. There's no other way. There is no other way this is going to happen. And for some of us, we've gone to God in agony and crying and fear and hurt. He said, God, please. And God looks at the whole picture and says, I know this hurts you. I know that feeling. But down the road, this could happen. Or down the road further, this could happen. Or a hundred years from now, this. Or a thousand years from now. If I change this, this becomes worse. We have to, and those are the times where he just says, you got to trust me. Jesus is basically saying, I'm begging you to cry out to your heavenly father and trust that out of his goodness and love for you, he will answer because he will answer. He is a God who loves to give good gifts. Luke 11, Jesus says that. You know, how many of you got fathers? You ask them for something, they give you a snake. He doesn't do that. Your heavenly father wants to give you good gifts. He wants to change your life. He wants to use you to accomplish greater things than Jesus did. He wants to empower you. And we can get upset, and I understand how it is, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like a five-year-old, little, little girl, five-year-old girl. She's sitting there crying because her toy broke, right? It's just, oh, this is the worst thing in the world. And a relative comes and says, look, your great uncle Elon just gave you 10,000 shares of Tesla stock. Hooray! And she goes, but my toe is broken. Why? Because she can't understand how huge this is that, he's, that we're, is being talked about here. She has no concept. And Jesus is saying, look, the concept here is gigantic. Trust me on this. This is way better than your Uncle Elon, right? Jesus says, your great heavenly father, as you're agonizing, your great heavenly father has adopted you into his family. He loves you dearly, and he is going to take you to live with him forever. You have been justified. You are accepted. The Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus is going to walk with you every step of the way in your whole life. And we're going, but I didn't get the job I wanted. It pales in comparison to what is being talked about here. We can't understand how huge it is. We get glimpses of it. This is why we go to Scripture, because it gives us glimpses of the greatness of God and how much he loves us and what a good God that he is, even 
in the most difficult of times that are full of tears and pain. And so, that's where, that's where I draw comfort in this. We look at this scripture, we look at what's being taught here, and we're being told, you know, that, that, that you have, you've been called to a mission. You've been called to a mission. You have an absolutely incredible work that God wants you to do. You have an incredible amount of power that is at your disposal. Use it. Now, you know, I thought about ending this with an example of answered prayer in my life. And, but I, I always hesitate to do that because, you know, oftentimes one person's joyful experience is another person's, you know, miserable experience. Somebody prays for a car, God gives them a car. Some other person goes, I pray for a car. I'm still on a bicycle. What the heck, right? Well, but I'm going to do it anyway, so here we go. When our kids were younger, and we had this minivan, and, and, and it just started having all kinds of problems. And the, the, the minivan, I mean, we hauled our kids around in it. We, we used it for our youth group, hauling kids on missions trips and different stuff like that. And, and I, I went, and I was asking a person, you know, about advice and different things like that. And this person said, let me ask you something. And I didn't even know what was happening at the time. But what this person was doing was going through this passage. He said, let me ask you something. You're going to use this van for ministry? And I said, yeah, we use the one that's dying for ministry. This next one we get, we're going to use it. We're going to use it. I mean, it's just, this is the most, dealing with these teenagers is the most important thing in my life right now. And, uh, okay, so let me ask you this. And, and we just went through some questions. We just went through some questions. And he said, okay, you know what? Uh, he gave me some advice. We talked some. And he said, let me pray. If there's anything else I can, you know, do, I'll, I'll let you know. And so that night, I thought, to, I told Bev, let's get our kids to pray. This would be a good experience for them, right? And then immediately, it was like we were talking. I said, but what if God doesn't answer? I said, let's do it anyways. So, you know, we, Derek, and he's our oldest, and he's just this, you know, he's like, God, we need a van. Please bring it. Thanks. You know, boom, good. And then you get to Holly, you know, and she's like, Jesus, the van, it'd be so nice because our van, the seats smell, and it's just not that comfortable, and it's little, and air conditioning doesn't work good, and we really like, and we'd like it tomorrow. And so we, we walk out of the room, and Belle's like, what are we going to do? And I said, yeah, she goes, Holly thinks a van is just going to, and drop in our parking, on top of the old van or something, you know, and she'll just walk out the door in the morning and go, yay, God, right? I said, I don't know. I don't, how do you explain to a kid? Okay, it doesn't quite work like that, you know, trying to. And so the next morning, I got a phone call. And it's from this guy. He goes, listen, I'm buying you a van. Go get one. I said, well, let me talk about this with you for a second. Let's just talk about this. I mean, I have payment plans. We'll work this out, you know, blah, blah. He goes, no, you don't understand. You have the same goals I have. I love teenagers. I want to see you reach teenagers. I want to see this used for ministry. I want to see it used for your family. So come by my house, pick up the check, go get a van. And I was like, Holly was right. Out of the mouths of babes, right? Out of the mouths of babes, you will be taught. And we got a van. It was amazing. It was amazing. 
I, I didn't know. And I went and told her, I said, God gave us a van. And she said, I know, I knew, I knew it was coming. You know, Derek was like, what? <laughs> so you're the one that needed that prayer. Okay. But now, let me just say something. Stuff like that has happened in my life. It doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen like that. But stuff like that has happened. Sometimes all this stuff aligns, and God says, watch and be amazed. And as you begin to pray that way, you will experience that. I'm not promising you a van. Don't come and ask me about it. But you will experience God do things that you never saw coming. You never saw coming. And, and, and this is what Jesus is talking about here. And finally, he says, I, I don't even, I'm running out of time. Uh, if you love me, keep my commands. And what I think he's doing there, he's kind of tying in the next verses that are coming as he continues to teach, but also he's emphasizing to them over and over and over, and this has happened so many times in this, as we go into this book, it's a relationship that is based on love. It is a relationship that is based on love. We are not under a burden of trying to please God. That's all taken care of. He's pleased with you. Automatic. It's done. We're not under that burden now. We're serving out of love. And what was cool for us is then we just said, let's pay it forward. You know, after a number of years, we gave family different car. We got a different car. Gave that van to somebody else. Just said, here you go, take it. You could use it. Boom. It's just not even a worry of, we didn't even think about, oh, well, you know, we could use it. If we could sell it, that would be nice, you know, to have some money, blah, blah, blah. No, because, because what it does is this, it just keeps working. It just keeps working in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. God, thank you for this access to prayer that we have. We can't even imagine. We don't know. We don't understand. And yet you command us to just trust me on this one. And so, Lord, we trust. As we walk, we, tr- we trust. And we struggle, and you know it. And this is why we need you, because you've experienced everything we've experienced. You, you, you know the hurts. You know the pain. You know the agony. You know what it is to want and not get. And so, Father, help us to become more like you, to be people who make an incredible impact on the world around us in simple little conversations and simple little actions of love. Help us to be, uh, to be the kind of people who just want to do that, Lord. We ask you, give us wisdom, encouragement, give us faith, give us strength so that we can go out into this world and minister to people who are flailing, who are chasing after um, just wisps of glory and never quite getting, and to be the people who know what it is to be content and loved. Thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name, amen.